like what do you do with long outlines i feel like i should do some sit-ups before i start like just to kind of improve my lungs like you know when we used to do vocal exercises well just a breathing exercise where you go and breathe in one two three four and hold two three four and <laughs> that's not our open so oh i'm leaving it in there it's my opening <laughs> No, I had a question that I've been saving. You can still ask it. The the it's still rolling. I can't find your outline. Here it is. Okay, I thought of this question. I was gonna text to you, and then I was like, no, 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 this is too good of a question. Yeah. To be wasted on a text. Okay, so I just watched Free Guy. Not not recently. It's been like a month. Yeah. Uh, and each so if you haven't seen Free Guy and you're listening, it takes place in a city like Grand Theft Auto. Right. There's variations of NPCs. So you got like your bank teller NPC. You're like girl on the street NPC and they each have taglines that they say like, you know, video game characters. So if you were in a video game based on like Lynchburg. Oh, my God. What is your NPC role and what is your phrase that you just walk around saying? I'm definitely the goth walking down down street. Like down street on <laughs> downtown. Downtown Main Street. Yeah. Um, and my catchphrase is. Another fucking cup of coffee that cost me six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's my NPC. What's yours? I'd probably be the runner on the street. That's true. And I don't know. My catchphrase would probably be like, it'd probably be, I really have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> Your character would stop though to pet dogs. Oh yeah. Like the like the main character would just be walking. Like I imagine it like a side scroller. Yeah. In like thirty two bit, and the main person be walking you'd run by and then like the same person be walking and then it's you again petting the dog just petting the dog and then it's just me walking by another fucking cup of coffee that was six dollars <laughs> i just i i want to i want to be an npc now like that movie this we're not a movie podcast but free guys really good guys yeah. go watch it i mean we're kind of dabbling a movie podcast yeah, at get, this point we keep getting invited to movie podcasts. i'm fine with that because movies is my other passion i would say shout out to our movie friends movies and tv i love good writing anyway i'm leah i'm Bethan. and this is she will rock you where are they getting a dub in a cbs executive meeting no bitch don't touch my thermostat <laughs> the ghost be like hold up before i haul you let me turn down the thermostat <laughs> this is bad we're on page one guys <laughs> this is she will rock you okay i'm not i'm just gonna hit wait do we need to read a review no, because this episode's going to okay. be really long. I will say, um, you, if you probably see it in your feed if you're subscribed, we with along with this episode, we are releasing a bonus episode yeah. about our um, ventures back into live music. We had we each Bethany went to Blue Edge Rock Festival this weekend. I went to go see the Struts for four days in a row. Uh, we had very different experiences. Very, very different. And we knew we had a lot to say. We had like 47 minutes of things to say. So uh, it's it's not an episode with a whole bunch of like substantial content. But if you want to hear our thoughts, pop on over to that bonus episode and give it a listen. Yeah. Um, but like I was saying in the intro, I kind of have to hit the ground running because I broke a record in how many pages I wrote, which I was not expecting by the way, because I started this outline on Friday. No, Saturday. I started researching. I was researching throughout the week. Like I normally will. I know I'm going to cover an artist and I'll get a head start on reading because that is the longest part yeah. of research because I'll 
you know, build our outline off Wikipedia. And then I personally will watch a documentary, read some articles to support it. So I try to get that reading done. But I watched a documentary on the way home from Charlottesville on Saturday. And I wrote six pages alone on Sunday. And then I wrote another five pages on Monday. It's a quality documentary. Yeah. Oh, it was a great documentary. My documentary I watched this time was not that substantial. It was VH1 behind the scenes. That's what I watched. Yeah. They usually, honestly, they did a good job. But I also watched another one on top of that. Um, It was another VH1 special from the early 2000s, but it was just focusing on like Metallica. Like not behind the scenes, like the whole scene of metal during the days. So they had different content. And then I built it off different articles. Um, but anyway, so let's just get into it because I also wrote two more pages yesterday. So like it is the longest thing I've written. I'm really excited for this because I literally know nothing about Metallica. Oh, this is this is going to be a fun one. You, there are some things in here, Leah. I wrote it down and I was like, Leah is just going to have the best time with this. I'm so excited. My anyway, I'm going to start with a disclaimer to the Metallica fans. Oh, God. Because I know how seriously you take this band. And I want you to know up front, this is the Taco Bell drive through version of this story. <laughs> we're getting in, we're buying our spicy potato tacos and Baja Blast Zero Sugar, and we're getting out. And we do this because we like to keep our episodes to an hour. This one's probably going to go over an hour because there's just too much to cover. And I'm actually going to focus just on the 80s into a little bit into the 90s as my time frame. Like I'm not really getting into the 2000s except for like the legacy part of it. So I'm going to ask you if you are looking for an episode that discusses Lars Drumfill from a random Milwaukee show in 1987 or commentary on what key James's yeah is in. This is not the episode for you. (laughs) You have found the wrong podcast. We are a greasy, spicy potato taco, and you're just looking for the prime rib taco from a fancy restaurant. I understand. You know, I'm sure that podcast exists somewhere else. It And it's not here. They actually, Metallica has their own podcast right now. You And I listened to some of that for this. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, it is cool. So they're, it's the 30th anniversary of the Black Album, mm. which we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, so you can get a little more information there. So please chill. Please do not come for me. Please don't comment in our reviews on iTunes and say, these guys didn't go deep enough into history. Yeah, we don't have time. Sorry. Yeah, we are we don't do this full time. We just spent 40 minutes talking about what a shit show Blue Ridge Rock Fest yeah. was, okay? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so don't come for me. Um, but anyway, so this is Metallica, who are part of the big four of metal, like of the 80s metal scene. Um, we'll probably cover like each of those artists at some point because all of them are fascinating. Um, but we got to start with the most well-known one and I would argue the most successful act. I'm also doing something a little different this presentation in that I'm not talking too much about the music. So normally I like, I'm still going to take you album by album, but I'm not going to go like, here are the hits off this album. This is why the music's different because truly there's just so much more history. And I want to cover a little bit more of the story and you can kind of fill in the gaps for the songs because everyone has heard a Metallica song at some point in their life. Um, So let's just go ahead and we're going to start by talking about the members. And I'm going to start by talking about three of the members of the band right now. 
because I think their story has a bigger impact on like the beginnings of Metallica. So the first one is Lars Ehrlich. He was born on um, December 26, 1963 in Gentofte, Denmark. He comes from like a really fun lineage. So his dad and his grandpa were both tennis stars in Denmark. Like his grandpa played in like the 1924 Olympics or something like that. I don't know what the year was. Is he 24 or 26? Somewhere in the 20s. Um, And he was planning on following in those footsteps. But an event happened when he was nine. He got tickets. Well, his dad got tickets to see Deep Purple. And he didn't know yet. But that event would change his life. And after that show, he bought um, their album Fireball and just developed an interest in drums. A few years later, his grandmother would buy him a drum kit. And while he had music, though, you know, he's still, you know, his main focus is tennis and he's got to follow in the footsteps. And he was pretty good. He was like top 10 for his age group in Denmark. So this resulted in him moving to Newport Beach, California, where he planned to continue, continue his tennis career. However, he quickly realized that while he is in the top 10 in Denmark, that would not be the case in the United States. So like every good metal kid, he said, fuck it and starts a band. (laughs) But let's pause there and let's move to James Hetfield. James Hetfield uh, was born on uh, August 3rd, 1963 in Downey, California. His mom was an opera singer at one point and his dad was a truck driver. He has an interesting upbringing, to say the least. But before I get into that, let's talk a little bit about his musical beginnings because he grew up playing piano. His mom <laughs> saw that he like would become a musician because he would just go up to the piano and like bang on it. And she goes, that kid's going to be a musician. <laughs> so she got him lessons at age nine. And then his brother let him play on a drum kit. He would bang on that. And then at 14, he got a guitar, which is his main instrument. Um, I'm assuming around his teenage years is when he started listening to Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, and Queen. And while in high school, he would play in a few bands that would cover these artists. But here's where the interesting part comes in, because he grew up in a strict Christian science home. Do you know anything about Christian scientists? I actually don't. Okay. So for those who don't know, and I went to Wikipedia to make sure because I didn't want to inaccurately represent them, um, but Christian scientists believe that the physical world is an illusion and the spiritual world is all there really is. So therefore, they strongly disagree with using medicine, but rather use prayer. However, because I believed, because I knew about them, but I was under the impression that they will never receive medical care Mm -hmm. like they just flat out refuse but that's not the case according to wikipedia it's that they just strongly disagree with it unless they absolutely have to interesting so i bring this up because lars's mom develops cancer and her beliefs led her to try and treat it with prayer instead of medicine now, she did unfortunately pass, and that would really shape James's music. And you hear that on certain songs that he plays. He openly writes about, like, being upset about that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, his mom passed when he was 16, and he went to go live with his older brother. We're going to pause, and we're going to move on to Cliff Burton. Cliff Burton was born on February 10th, 1962, in Castro Valley, California. 
His dad was integral in his musical journey, introducing him to classic music and having him take piano lessons. However, when he was a teenager, he discovered rock and heavy metal. And then age 13, he picked up a bass. He did so after the death of his brother. And he told his parents he was going to be the best bass player ever in honor of his brother. Aww. Yeah, it's really sweet. So he would like practice six hours a day. And it showed. Like this dude is an absolutely insane bass player. Um, but so he had a few bands in high school. One was called Easy Street. Another was called Agents of Misfortune. Uh, but his big break came with a band called Trauma. So I'm going to pause his story there. And we're going to find out how these batch of metal hooligans found each other. <laughs> well, Lars knew a friend who was putting together a metal uh, compilation album. And it was going to be called Metal Massacre. And he asked his friend, can you save me a spot? And the friend said, yeah. And Lars then goes and forms a band. And he does so by putting a wanted ad in a newspaper. Hey, that works. And it was something like drummer seeking band members in a metal band. And James Hetfield responded to that ad. Well, the two start hanging out a bit. They get to know each other. And then they officially form a band in October of 1981. They grab James Hetfield's roommate, Ron McGovney, to play bass. And they ask Dave Mustaine, future frontman of Megadeth. Yeah, I was like, I recognize that name. Yeah, to play lead guitar. The band got their name when Lars's friend, was deciding on what to call his metal fanzine. And he was stuck between Metal Mania or Metallica. And Lars said, go with Metal Mania and kept Metallica. Yeah. And I don't know why the fuck I'm now discovering at age 29, Metallica has the word metal in it. I don't know why this is just occurring on me. Yes. I think you just hear Metallica, Metallica, Metallica. And it's like, oh, metal, Ica. <laughs> it took me this long. That's it. That's the end of the episode. I don't know. Guys. It's just one of those things you're used to hearing, and you just don't put two and two together. So I know some Metallica fan has just turned off this podcast by the fact I just said that. But whatever. Sorry, guys. Whatever. Um, but this brings me to a section I would like to call Thrash versus Glam. Leah, close your ears for this part. <laughs> don't shit on glam metal. Well, I'm not going to shit on glam metal because I am a innocence unbiased bystander observing history and interpreting it and reading it to you it's the one genre of metal i like (laughs) (laughs) you see metallica is a thrash metal band which is birthed out of a hate for glam metal and there were a lot of slurs thrown around about glam metal in L.A. i'm not going to talk about them uh dave mustaine who i'm going to tell you right now Personally, I do not like the dude and I will shit on him a little bit in this outline for different reasons. I personally just do not like him. Um, But anyway, uh, but let's just say the members of Thrash, including Dave Mustaine, were displeased that these bands were wearing spandex and makeup to sell their music. There's nothing wrong with that. No, I would agree with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But these dudes are just not like here for it they're just jealous they couldn't pull off the spandex i mean makeup i agree with you these (laughs) pop belly motherfuckers trying to (laughs) throw down i kind of regret saying that i'm sorry i'm sorry where's the lie though (laughs) meanwhile motley Cruz just strung out on cocaine not eating so 
Anyway, so they also believed that they could play music harder and faster. Harder, better, faster, stronger. (laughs) So the phrase thrash metal, according to Wiki, came from a Kerrang journalist who was talking about anthrax. Um, They had a song called Metal Thrashing Mad. So that's the origin of it. And the historian I was listening to also described it as a cross between British metal and punk. Like they often say thrash picked up where a lot of British heavy metal bands left off. And then the influence of the 80s punk scene, that's what kind of birthed it. Because punk is very fast too. Okay. I would like to point out that history has hopefully humbled their views. Because let's keep in mind how goofy, in my opinion, it is to have the word metal in everything you do. Metallica. Metal Massacre, Metal Mania. Like, for some reason, it doesn't age well to me. And, like, the hard scene, the hardcore scene also picked up this habit. And as a card holding member of that scene, I feel like we are doomed to repeat history. But anyway, I do have a wholesome story from this time. According to Lars, one day him and James just hanging around LA drinking, and they see Motley Crue. Oh God! <laughs> so it's the anti-Metallica. So Lars, like it's it's basically like West Side Story, Jets <laughs> versus what's the other one? The Sharks? Yeah, Jets versus the Sharks. That's what this is. Okay, so Lars, being the thrasher he is, yells, "Hey, Motley Crue, fuck you!" And Nikki Six starts chasing Lars, <laughs> and Lars said. The only reason he could not catch up was because Nikki was wearing high platform That's shoes. Amazing. And he was not. <laughs> okay, he's got one up on Motley Crue yeah. there, I guess. It's it's I, I found that story. I, I got tickled when I heard that story. I knew you'd love it. Anyway. I'm just picturing platformed Nikki Six running well, to the like, streets I of just, LA. I just imagine Lars running with like tennis shoes. And he used to play tennis. So like the dude can run fast and then it's just Nikki Six just like <laughs> clunk, clunk, yeah, clunk, 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 just trying to get That's after amazing. Lars. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is the thread like of anti-glam metal is just woven into these early days. And speaking of those early days, like I mentioned, Dave Mustaine, in my opinion, is an asshole, both then and both now. But for context of the story, he and Ron aren't getting along and mainly Dave's fault because he was drunk and being a dick, a violent dick at that. And like Ron leaves the band. So they are in search of a new bassist and lucky for them, Lars and James are going to a show at the whiskey a go-go in 1982 where trauma is playing and they are just blown away by Cliff Burton. So they begin talks to recruit him for the band. And I think it was like after six months, he finally agreed, but his only condition was they had to move to the San Francisco area. And they're like, yeah, sure. And so they all moved up there. And uh, there's one more band change that's going to happen before they really start getting their feet wet in, in albums. So while we're still in 1982, the band released a demo tape called No Life to Leather. And it was distributed by cassette tape and circulated around the metal scene. And a record store owner in New Jersey named John Zazula, or Johnny Z as he went by, heard this cassette. Here's what's wild to me. This thrash metal scene gained traction just by fanzine and bootleg cassettes in like college pirate radio. Mm-hmm. 
Like that's pretty much it. And for this thing to travel from California to New Jersey is a pretty fucking big deal. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, it could have been super easy, but like, I'm kind of doing some between reading between the lines here. Like, that's kind of nuts. Um, so Johnny Z hears them, he contacts them, he offers to help broker a deal with record companies in New York. So they all fly out to New York and stay with Anthrax. Um, where they shared, like they all shared an apartment together and they had these things, Scott Ian from Anthrax was saying, they had these things called loser's lunch where all they had was like a slice of bologna on their hand because that's Ew. all they had to eat. Ew. <laughs> loser's lunch, just bologna on a hand, just eating the bologna. Um, but the record label in New York like passed on them and John is you. Johnny Z's like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go make my own label. So he makes his own label called Megaforce Records and just sign them right away. So let's go back to that apartment they're sharing with Anthrax. Dave Mustaine, who ages like a fine jar of mayo and gets worse over time, is Ew. causing a lot of tension in the band. He would get drunk, which the rest of the band would do because they were actually had this little name called alcoholica the other people used to call them oh my god <laughs> but his problem lied like where most of the band would you know be fun play pranks on each other he would just get violent and they would just start clashing and it just was not a good match so one morning according to dave mustaine he wakes up and the band is just standing over him and they say you're out of the band and he says when does my flight leave? And they put him on a Greyhound bus oh. and send him home to California. But like I said, he his story is going to pick up with Mega Megadeth. He's going to do just fine. But, you know, th that's him in and leaving the band. So after Dave left, they hired on the same day Exodus guitarist Kirk Hammett, who has stayed in the band to this day. Now, it's not fair we cover the other three. I just want to give some quick points about Kirk because I think he was like the cutest kid growing up. Like, I would have hung out with this kid. So he was born on November 18th, 1962 in San Francisco, California. He loves horror films. Like, really cheesy sci-fi horror films. Interesting. And it all started when he was five because he got into a fight with his sister and sprained his arm. So his parents were like, just go sit there in front of the TV. And an old cheesy horror film came on and he was just hooked. So he would get milk money and he would sell it for horror comics. <laughs> and then he got interested in music from listening to artists like Jimi Hendrix and UFO. So he then proceeded to sell his horror comics for music records. And then at age 15, he got a guitar. And when he was in high school, this is pretty cool. Like he was friends with Les Claypool who would go to form Primus which is a cool band um, he would actually like at some point audition for Metallica Les Claypool and if you've heard Primus you see why that didn't work because Primus some people categorize them as metal I personally don't think they're they're more prog rock maybe prog metal in my book um, but yeah they He's also like the writer of the South Park theme song as Primus. So like you can see why it didn't work. Such a clashing of worlds. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, he does fine. And that's 
all I have about Kirk. So let's talk about their first album. The band was given $15,000, which is pretty damn good for recording a first album. Yeah. Um, considering Led Zeppelin, what, they did it on 3000 in like yeah. a day? Something like that. I feel like it's still really low for the 80s, but... Yeah, could be. But the accurate comparison is what was what was Motley Crue given for their... Uh, probably like a hundred bazillion dollars in cocaine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just the cocaine alone was a hundred bazillion dollars. Yes. And then they just had to show up like once in a while for, uh, Vince Neil to go. Yeah. And then they just fill in the rest of the session guitars. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> I don't have a ton of time, like I said, to really talk about the music in this episode. Um, but I do have time to cover some hilarious facts about this album. Okay. The band originally chose a name for this first album. Metal Up The Ass. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> and the cover art, just wait, was depicting a hand holding a dagger coming out of a toilet. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Uh, and... Basically, Johnny Z pulls him aside and said, listen, you can't call it that because distributors will think it's offensive and they're not going to distribute it. So they call it kill them all. Like, how the fuck is that any better? (laughs) And the name was chosen because upon hearing the news that they couldn't name it metal up the ass, Cliff said, those record company fuckers, kill them all. Oh, my God. And that's that's how the name was chosen. But anyway, the in shows, because I watched a clip of this, you know, James Hetfield would get up there and he was talking about the albums like, yeah, we're going to metal up the ass, but they wouldn't let us. And he's like, this is about all you fucking glam metal people. It's like, kill them all. I'm like, this is some violent shit, man. They're starting fights. They this is some finish. <laughs> Dude. Hold on to that point, because when we talk about the actual history of the rest of this band, that's going to be become very ironic because it's very true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, Anyway, the album came out in July of 1983. They originally printed 15,000 copies, but they would go on to sell 60,000 copies at the end of 1984. That may not sound like a big deal, but here's what's interesting. Mainstream radio refused to play Metallica for a long time. And what's going to be just incredible about this band is that they basically are just like forcing their way into the public eye with no mainstream media help at all. And they relied on fanzines and the metal underground fans to distribute their music. Like it's insane how big they're about to get without any radio help. Mm -hmm. It's just almost unheard of. Like, I've never heard of a band doing this. The band goes and tours that album, and their largest crowd was 7,000, which is pretty damn good for a first album. That is really good. Then in 1984, they leave Megaforce Records. They sign an eight-album deal with a major label called Elektra. Eight? Eight. That's a huge deal. I think they're still on Elektra. I may be wrong on that. Don't quote me. Um... So you could say things are getting good for the band, though. Yeah. And then they go back into the studio. This time they're in Denmark recording, which they'll record a couple albums there. And the second album they record is called Ride Lightning. I can guarantee you've seen the cover art. Yeah, you've (laughs) you've seen the cover art. 
Um, one thing I did want to highlight about this album is it reached number 100 <laughs> on the Billboard 200. No radio exposure. That's really good. Unheard of. And they initially pressed 75,000 in 1984 and sold half a million by 1987. Dang. Yeah. And then when they went to tour this album, their biggest show, which was with Bon Jovi, which is an interesting pairing. That is a very interesting pairing. Very interesting pairing. That crowd size was 70,000. So think about that. They went from playing a crowd of 7,000 to 70,000, a tenfold increase by with no radio exposure, just word of mouth and getting on the right tours all within a year or two. That'll never happen again. No. If I can get 7,000 people to listen to our podcast, listen to us talk, I would die happy. We're doing doing great. We're doing fantastic. So get the word of mouth out, folks. (laughs) We just want to hit 7,000. That's our new goal. That's it. And then we'll quit. We'll go retire somewhere. (laughs) Retire early from the $100 we make. I was going to say retire early with our $300 (laughs) in ad money. (laughs) Um, Anyway. Um, so we're going to move on to their third album and because you all have seen this cover, I guarantee you on an FYE shirt, they must be important. (laughs) So that's really the tier of success. Did your album land on an FYE shirt at some point? That's actually not a bad gauge of success. It's not like who fucking cares about what Rolling Stone says or anyone else. Were you in FYE? During the boom of the 2000s. That's how you knew you were the real ones. Um, But after touring, things just start ramping up for the band as if they're not already. And they're clearly on the cusp of something big. And for this one, the band really wanted to like make an impression on critics while staying true to their thrashy thrash ways. Um, After all, like they're just getting pushed around by major media anyway. Um, So they head back to the studio in Denmark record master of puppets master of puppets and this was a different album up to this point one they had like a different writing process where james and lars and they're already kind of like we're probably doing most of the writing they really take the lead on crafting the songs um they went over on like time because they wanted to perfect it they're staying sober while recording this album, which good for them. Yeah. They're also like working better together musically because they've been jamming for, with each other. Like they've had that current group together for at least three or four years. So they're hitting a good sweet spot. And then Cliff is like bringing a lot more music theory into the mix for his bass playing, which really adds a nice element to it. And this all paid off because this was a massive hit for the band. And when it, were, when it was released in 1986, many critics cite this album as redefining heavy metal. A lot of the bands we have today will likely cite either this album or the Black Album, which we'll talk about later as a reason they got into music. Like Pantera, who we covered, this album was pinnacle to their sound. Um, and it was later, um, this album was later inducted into the Library of Congress's preservation program. It's so funny to me. that there's You know what's hilarious? <laughs> this one is, but the Black Album, which is the most monumental metal album that's ever been put out, is not. <laughs> I truly don't understand that. 
I truly don't get it. Maybe they'll it's revisit fine. it eventually. Yeah. Anyway, um, but commercially, it was their biggest hit. Yeah, it peaked at number 29 on Billboard 200 and stayed on the charts for 72 weeks. It sold 300,000 copies in the first three weeks and went platinum by the end of 1986. So to promote this album, what do they do? They go on a tour. And this time with Ozzy Osbourne. A very well pairing. That is a good pairing. Very good pairing. But this is the last time the band would ever be an opening act. Like they will never be an opening act after this. It's crazy they to me will that there's just be a still an opening act. Like with that big of success. Well, they're no longer opening acts. Yeah. 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 yeah they well, will like, always be. A head- yeah. By that point. Yeah. By that point. Yeah. That's no, like I saying Paramore is an opening act. Right. Right now. Like that they're beyond that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why that was the first example in my head. But, oh, it you works know. so. No, you, you are correct, though. Okay, maybe a better example would be Phoebe Bridgers being an opening act. Like, yeah. She's kind of exploded, and she's beyond that. And that's like, oh, she's going to open up for Taylor Swift. And everyone's like, nah, no, she can have her own stadium yeah, tour. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. So, unfortunately, though, there's just a big tragedy that strikes the band. So during the European leg of the Damage Inc. tour, the band is traveling through Sweden on their tour bus. And they're having just like a friendly discussion on sleeping bunks and they all pull cards and Cliff pulls the Ace of Spades and basically says, Kirk, I'm taking your bunk. And he agrees. That night on September 27th, the bus driver claims they slipped on black ice and the bus goes tumbling off the road. And Cliff dies in the accident. Oh, my God. The bus actually landed on him because he fell out of the window and the <sighs> bus landed on him. Oh, my God. And they tried to get it off of him and they couldn't. And, like, this literally, like, broke James, like, when it was happening. Because, like, when he realized what happened, like, he immediately just, like, started accusing the bus driver of like being drunk. The bus driver said, no, it was black ice. And he literally went in his underwear and walked for miles to look for black ice. And he's like, I don't see any. Where is it? Like he said in the documentary I was watching, he was ready to kill this dude. Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, how did I not know that happened? I didn't know it either. And I'm not like a huge Metallica fan. I didn't know that. I I feel like that's something that should be common knowledge like it probably isn't really metallica yeah, yeah, yeah. groups but i feel like not a lot of the public knows about it um but i think it was blamed on a mechanical error is ultimately what happened but I, i'm not entirely sure what it was um but like people just try to find explanations in those tragedies and sometimes there's just nothing you can do so they canceled that part of the tour they went home to recoup and they wrestled with whether to continue as a band but they felt like Cliff would have wanted them to carry on. So they eventually just got back into it and went to go look for a new bassist. So they auditioned like 40 people. And they finally landed on Jason Newston, Newstand, I'm sorry, from a band called Flotsam Jetsam. It's a good band name. It's not to be confused with the Eels from yeah, Little Mermaid. Because yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. But instead it's a reference to Lord of the Rings. Well, it's also just like the shit that floats in the ocean is flotsam and jetsam. Is that okay? I was gonna ask you because I had a feeling you would know where it actually <laughs> is the original root. Yeah, of that's that. that's I'm like ninety nine percent sure that's what it comes from. Okay, that makes sense. Um, just so like random ocean debris. Okay, that makes sense. 
So the band begins to pick back up their career and they all move to like north of San Francisco to practice. In space, no one can hear you scream. Unless you have a podcast. It's Space Castle! Join three nerds. I'm DT. I'm Alex. And I'm Seth. As they hurtle through space, debating movies, books, games, and answering your pop culture questions. All to maintain their own sanity. Space Castle, your clubhouse and ours for all things nerdy. Available wherever pods are casted. We're going to take a brief intermission because we're already what? About 40 minutes in. Um, We're going to talk and tell two stories they have nowhere to fit in this outline, but they're in here because one, they're hilarious, and two, they just add so much character to the band. So these are two character studies. Okay. Um, I believe this first one happened earlier in their career, but the dudes at one point rented a house together, which you know is going to end poorly. You're just asking for for damage band houses usually don't end up in sellable conditions usually something's getting lit on fire or we're summoning um demons in the case of motley crew that's true that's true as well um so they would basically take out all the furniture out of the house and like put it on the lawn and they would throw (laughs) these thrash parties and anyone who showed up to the party wearing the wrong band shirt that they didn't like the band would go after them and take off their shirt. Like <laughs> That's going to be my rule at my house now. If you show up with a band shirt I don't like, I'm going to take your shirt off. <laughs> um, the last story, um, by this point in 1987, James Hetfield, he loves a skateboard. The dude loves skateboarding. It's 19, it's the, the 80s. Everyone he could have been Tony Hawk, but no. He could have been. But he broke his wrist twice from skateboarding he may have broken it a couple more times and you know when you break your wrist and you're a rhythm guitarist you know you got to bring the guitar tech in you know which is fine but you know it got to a point that in the documentary i watched they said they had to put a clause in james's contract to stop fucking skateboarding when they're touring because he kept breaking his wrist yeah, maybe you should just stop after the second time, bud. Yeah, maybe, you know, you just got to sit and be like, you know, I'm getting a lot of money. Maybe skateboarding to is, use my not, hands. is not the career path for me. My brother r- broke his, uh, was it his wrist or his, he broke something skateboarding. He, we, my, my mom built his, a little pipe so he can do a little grind move on it and he floop, flip, broke. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's way easier to do. I fractured an arm on some rollerblades that way. I told everyone in the class, I was in second grade, I broke on a half pipe. You know what the half pipe was? The uh, handicap accessible little ramp for people on sidewalks. <laughs> I I totally said, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was going on a half pipe and I did a turn and and I'm telling you the street cred I got. Like this kid who didn't like me was all of a sudden like 
prepare the way for Beth Ann, the most shreddest. Like That's it amazing. was fantastic. And then as soon as he healed, everyone forgot about me. Anyway, um, the band is working on their fourth album <laughs> at this point um, called And Justice for All with the new bassist, Jason Newston. I'm not going to spend too much time on this album, of course, but we're going to cover the quick facts about it. It's really a different album than they've done up to this point. And I feel like every band goes through this point where they're like, we got to do something different. And you should experiment. You know, you're at a point you had a really successful album and usually that's when they try to experiment and try something new. So are they faster? Yes. Do they have even faster tempo changes? You got it. Like this album, like similar to Master of Puppets, they talk about political climates of that time. And I feel like that also sets them apart as well as a band because, and I could be wrong, but like metal wasn't really talking about politics then, but rather like a fucked up version of satanic limbo. How dark can you go? Right? Like, um, so this was one of the things that just made them above the noise, but they also like, were basically like, Oh, we're going to throw together all these like tempo changes and time signatures and see if it works. Does it work? I don't know. Let's put it together. Like it was very like mishmashed yeah. in a way, but it still works. Like people still love the album. There's also a fun story that comes from Loudwire about this album. And I'm going to read the quote to you. After hearing Gun- Guns N' Roses groundbreaking debut, Appetite for Destruction, Ehrlich became fixated with Metallica's next album having as hard of a sound. Quote, it was venomous. It was so fucking real and so fucking angry. The drummer gushed to classic rock. Thus, when producer Fleming Rasmussen told Metallica he would not be available to work with them, Ehrlich sought out Mike Klink, who had produced Appetite. On the other hand, writer Mick Wall noted that Axl Rose gave Metallica's Ride the Lightning as an example to Klink prior to recording it. That's hilarious. Isn't that fantastic? Um, so how did the album do? Well, critics love it. One journalist from Rolling Stone said, quote, a marvel of precisely channeled aggression. Um, that just rolls off the tongue. Commercially, it peaked at number six on the Billboard 200. So like it's pretty high. Blew it out of the water. I mean, Master of Puppets only got to 29. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. But you don't really see like Injustice for All's shirts no. a lot. Um, they also received its first Grammy nomination, which brings up one of my favorite stories while researching. So one of the documentaries I watched, which was VH1 Behind the Music, um, they talk about being nominated for the hard rock and metal category of that year in 1989. And they were like the favorite to win and they lose it to Jethro Tull. And I kid you not in this documentary, the music was as if someone died. Like it was the sad 2000s guitar of do, 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 do. And just this dude getting on there like, no one respects metal, man. <laughs> like, Little do they know, like fast forward in a few years, like either them or Slayer is just going to always win that category. Yeah, for so, the rest of forever. For the rest of forever. So like, it's fine. We did not win. Everyone so respects metal. Even when that documentary was made, they were still winning. So like. You all can chill out. Okay? I love the dramatic editing on the VH1. So dramatic. Every time something bad so happens. So dramatic. 
Also, an interesting tidbit about this record. This is pretty much the first time they film a music video. for their. It's for their song, One. So, like, up to this point, once again, this is, like, so it's 1989. The band's been together since 1983. Their first album was 1984. Five years later, and they're just getting around to filming their first That's music video. And they're huge. They're huge by then. And considering they were coming up in the MTV generation, like... It's weird that they weren't filming videos earlier. Right. Yeah, because MTV started in what, 1985, 84? People were making music videos back in the late 70s. Yeah. That's pretty wild. I'm trying to think who we just covered who made. I don't remember. That's right. Well, we're on page eight of my outline, so we can finally start talking about the 90s. The, the era in which we exist. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's just so much content with this band. Um, but we finally have arrived to the part where you all have been waiting for. The Black Album. Or really just Metallica because it's a self-titled album. So during the touring of Injustice for All, the band noticed something. While playing their insane like nine-minute songs, because they were basically progressive rock songs... They noticed like a disassociated look on the audience's faces. Like they weren't just, they weren't connecting with the music like the band was. Um, so the band just really wanted to fix this. And part of that solution was cutting down their songs. Who would have thought? Um, Nine minutes is quite a long song. I mean, I've listened to some songs in that length and they're great. But they're definitely like, they're good for long car rides. I listen to a lot of Prague when I'm in a long car ride, and I can just enjoy it. It's a little bit hard when it's a concert. Yeah. It's a little, in my opinion, it's a little bit hard. I mean, if you only have an hour and a half to play, that's like... Two songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, another solution was finding a new producer to give them some new inspiration. Meet producer Bob Rock. Not to be confused with his brother, Bill Roll. Oh, my God. You know, you got to throw a dad joke in because you're talking about dad rock. So, you know. Dad rock. <laughs> Someone out there is just turning off their show because you call Metallica dad rock. And yet rock. some of them have just turned it up louder. <laughs> so, this is a separate of the wheat from the chaff. Like, meet the wheat of Kansas. The, the meat and wheat. The meat and wheat. Uh, if you haven't listened to the bonus episode, I found out this week that Kansas is... VIP package for their tour is called the meat and wheat package. That might be the best fact I've learned this week. It's incredible. And I'm going to try to win tickets to that show. Please do. Radio station gives them away. I I live off. I am the job of the hut, the growth on Liam when it comes to these tickets because she has the energy to put in a bunch of uh, submissions every single day. Yeah. And then she gets them and, you know. I Listen, get a phone call sometimes. I sometimes I feel bad when I win multiple in a row. I don't. And then I remember <laughs> that iHeartRadio owns all of our radio stations, and I say, nah, fuck them. No, and they're getting to the podcast scene and stealing our friends' podcasts. So you know, yeah. So yeah, fuck I will off. take their concert tickets. Um, but anyway, so Bob Rock is not the likely candidate for the job, mainly because he works with bands. That are more in the glam metal scene. They need they need Bob Metal instead of Bob Rock. <laughs> no, that's the uncle. 
Okay. Tim Metal is his name. Tim Metal. Tim Metal. But he is specifically known for working with a little band called Motley Crew. I love this. How the tides have turned. But basically, the band's not interested in the artists he's produced. They're interested in the sound he's getting in his albums. So they hire him. And it's not the perfect match professionally because him and James are just butting heads quite a bit. But sometimes you need that. Sometimes the most successful albums is when you got the producer pushing you creatively. Yeah. And I think he was definitely successful in that. Um, Because while their last album was wild as fuck, you know, it helped them to edit, rethink some of these songs. There's also a humbling moment during this recording. In an article from Mental Floss, and I'm just going to read the block quote here. Um, Rock asked the band what the deal was with all their songs being in the key of E. (laughs) Metallica believed E was the lowest note. They were unfamiliar with drop D tuning. And (laughs) Rock informed them that on the Motley Crue Dr. Feelgood, the band tuned down to D. So Metallica then tuned down to D and that's when the riff for uh, the song Sad But True really became huge. It was this force that you just couldn't stop no matter what. Here's what I love. Um, I love that they couldn't be outdone by Motley Crue. And yet, why do I see Nikki Six sitting in a swivel chair, his legs crossed with his high platform shoes, laughing that he was lower and by law more brutal than Metallica for once. Okay, how the fuck do you get this far in your career and not know drop D toning exists? This goes back to sometimes you shouldn't shit on other genres of the same umbrella of metal. I can't so maybe even... You, maybe you should learn from each other. Also, Just a thought. I can't even really play guitar and I know drop D tuning exists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How the fuck do you not know that? <laughs> they are huge at this point, mind you. Yeah, they've huge. been playing guitar for like 20 years, too. <laughs> they just discover it They now. never just like struck up a conversation with their friendly nope. neighborhood guitar tech? Well, you know, they were they couldn't ask Nikki Six because, you know, they were too busy saying, anthrax? fuck you. What's Anthrax doing over there? How the fuck have I known? I haven't read their outline yet. I haven't read their research or wiki page. I'll let you know. Are they tuned to Drop D? Probably. I don't know. They just don't talk to each other. <laughs> this is like the weirdest thing we've ever talked about on our show. I'm um, so offended on their behalf. <laughs> they didn't know this. Leah with her pink Fender guitar is you offended. Mean, I'm, I'm offended on their behalf. That just makes them look. I wouldn't admit that to anybody if I knew that. Dude, it's amazing this came out like in a mental floss article. I would not admit that to anybody. It's amazing. Um, but anyway. So the sand, the sand, the band <laughs> also tried. Enter Sandman. Enter Sandman. <laughs> the band also tried a new songwriting style. For example, the song Nothing Else Matters. Also, according to Mental Floss, and shout out to their article, 11 Heavy Facts about Metallica. Um, James wrote that song on the road during a personal moment. Um, he said the song was, quote, all about him trying to write a love song without saying the word love, which is a cute premise. Uh, he then played it for Lars, and Lars is like, 
that's cool, man. And then (laughs) James is like, yeah, man. And it was just, you know, this kind of connecting. They had a bro moment. Yeah, bro moment. And then he plays it for Kirk and Kirk um, said, quote, all I could think of at the times was James wrote a fucking love song to his girlfriend. That's just weird. Why is that weird? Because <laughs> they're metal, Leah. Their they first album was going to be called Metal Up the Ass. They can't write a love song? No. This is where Motley Crue is superior. They Motley, can't, Leah. Motley Crue has emotions. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Emotions. I just banged my head on the couch. <laughs> Felt so passionately about that. <laughs> Motley Crue has feelings. Uh, but never to fear. Um, so like Metallica was worried like James specifically when they put the song on there he's like dude are the people not going to receive these songs well they were pretty well received and Elton John has some fabulous commentary about this song and basically like so recently Elton and Miley who also has like I think Watts is on it Robert uh, and Chad Smith from Run Hot Chili Peppers. So they just have this amazing cover of the song Nothing Else Matters um, for the Blacklist album, which we'll talk about in a second. And it's also going on Elton's new album as well. I fucking can't wait for that album. That you know album, it too. Okay, it's total sidebar. Yeah. Stop listening to this podcast for like two seconds and just go look at the track list for Elton's upcoming yes. album. It's fucking insane. Oh, it's incredible. Um, but basically in this interview I was watching with um, Elton and uh, Miley was there and the band was there. I think it was Howard Stern. Like Elton basically says like, this is one of the best songs I've ever written. And like makes James Hetfield cry. Aww. Like it's such a sweet moment of musicians across spectrums. Just having like a love, a general love and appreciation for each other's music. You have to send me that video so I can put it in the show notes. Yes, I'll send it to you. It's, it's pretty great. Um, back to the actual producing of the album. It was remixed three times, which I love how Wiki words this quote. The Black Album was remixed three times, cost US $1 million. What? And ended three marriages. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think it was Kirk. Lars and James, they all suffer. I think, the whole I think that's what this is three. Yeah, one of them was either single or still married. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But yeah, that's a, bu- a couple of them were going through divorces, which we know from rumors. The best albums are in the midst of a divorce, folks. I'm sorry. You want to write good music? Time to get those prenups ready. Like, uh, yes. <laughs> let me tell you what it, what the secret is to a, a banging music winning album. You got to make a sacrifice. I'm sorry. Um, so the songs, uh, were different. They're more personal, cost a shit ton of money. They tried out a new producer, but was it worth it? You likely know the answer to this. And just in case you don't, I'll tell you, this album is like the juggernauts of juggernauts. I can't actually think of a bigger album in metal. Honestly, it has hits like enter Sandman, enter Sandman and enter Sandman. Which, if you're from the Blue Ridge, Virginia area, you know as the sound that Virginia Tech players enter to. Yeah, very true. Start jumping. But also has Nothing Else Matters and Sad But True were also really big hits. It debuted at number one 
in the Billboard 200. It sold more than half a million in its first week and has sold, according to a recent article I pulled from Kerrang, like just, I think it was at the beginning of this year, 30 million copies. I don't think I realized. Of just this album. Yeah, I don't think I realized. Just this album alone. How big that album was. Like, I didn't. Yeah. I just assumed because my dad listened to it that it was. It's a monster. An album. But I didn't know it was number one. Yeah. It's. It's basically on a list called on Wiki called list of best sell- selling albums. Like I haven't seen that list yet. No, maybe we for really Fleetwood, I saw there. that list maybe. But anyway, in late 2018, they also hit an insane milestone of being on the Billboard charts for 500 weeks. How many years is that? That's t- is that ten years? It's yeah, it's 52 weeks in a year. 52 weeks, yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that insane? Um, Critically, it's just praised up and down. It's ranked number 235 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. The old list. I'm assuming we're getting a new list Well, we just got the song one. Yeah, the greatest songs of all time. So I'm assuming the album list is coming as well. Yeah. The, The one they had was really good. Everything was solid in the top 50, except for like Daddy Yankee's Gasolina was number 50. And I'm like, surely... Surely it cannot be this song in number 50. I don't know why. Like, I feel like there's just other songs that could have taken that spot. I guess the cultural impact. Oh, that makes sense. They they seem to on this new. This is the songs list. That makes a lot more sense. They seem to have weighted the cultural impact of a lot of songs because like Kanye's number 500, which personally I wouldn't put a Kanye song in the top 500. But some of his albums do have or some of his songs have an I almost said agricultural impact. God, <laughs> and a cultural impact. Yeah. Um, and I can see Gasolina. I can understand that a little bit more when you put it that way. Yeah. I just think of middle school dance. You know, I think of Grand Theft Auto where you weren't allowed to grind on each other like but you wanted to because that song came on. We didn't play that at my school. Oh, <laughs> that's what you get when you go to New York school. <laughs> <laughs> Yours was don't 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 turn the lights down low. But where is the lie? Um. Anyway, uh, so it's just one of those albums that, in my opinion, both defined and changes changed a genre. If that makes sense, like it showed you what it is while introducing new progressive elements mm-hmm. of where it can go. And for a while, it did guide a torch of thrash until the scene started dying around 1992 or 1993-ish. Um, punk rock NBA, who I refer to a lot because whenever I do anything metal or punk or hardcore, he has excellent videos. Um, he cites that Pantera's... Um, oh, shit. It's the vulgar... I can't even think of the name of it. It's a dude game punched. Um, that album like is what started killing it because they went more into a groove metal direction. Like they took thrash and they retranslated it into groove, which groove is a lot slower. I'm just thinking of the TikTok you sent me that was explaining <laughs> different metal subgenres with Star Wars characters. Yes. Yes. It's perfect. You can just pick that in your mind. Um, which just leads us to a quick summary of the rest of the nineties because I can't talk about it all. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary here. So the 90s were was a pretty successful time for this band. Um, 
And by that point, I mean, they've already sealed their legacy. That's how huge the Black Album was. However, some wild ass things happened that we got to talk about. For one, there is this infamous show in Montreal that happened in 1992 where both Guns N' Roses and Metallica were co-headlining. It was a tour. Wow. And during that set, the pyrotechnics team screwed up. And it was a big ass screw up. To the point where James was standing on stage and like the little fire blast like tornado thing went off. And luckily he survived. But like he sustained second and third degree burns on his arms, legs and face. What saved him was his guitar because it shielded him from a big chunk of the blast. Oh my gosh. But thankfully he's okay because that was like some of the scariest shit ever. Like they played a clip of it in the documentary and it was so scary to watch. And like this is kind of gross. So if you're not a big gore person, like fast forward a smidge. But like his skin was boiling up bubbles. Yeah. From like how hot it was. Um, But because he's a trooper, he came back like 17 days later. Damn. Or something like that. And luckily his guitar tech was well prepared due to the times he broke his arm (laughs) during skateboarding. (laughs) So that worked out nice. Um, But wait, that same show gets worse. Because after that happened and they had to cut their set short and, you know, Metallica... As they're getting older, and I'm going to talk about this more, you can definitely see them maturing. And they got on stage and like, guys, James is going to the hospital. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to cut this set short, but we are going to come back into town. We are going to play a full set. We make you this promise. Like, they're just really a class act. They're yeah. really, you know, because there's not much you can do in those situations, yes. right? <laughs> um, and then Guns N' Roses takes the stage. And Axl Rose throws a fit. Because he's a fucking asshole. Because he's a fucking asshole. Because his monitor sound is not that good. And he just walks off stage and refuses to play. So the rest of the band goes off stage. And they don't even play that whole night. And so there's a riot in Montreal. And it's all Axl Rose's fault. They made the Canadians riot? They made the Canadians (laughs) riot. You heard that correctly. So after that insane event, the band tours the Black Album for three years. They play Woodstock 94, probably Lollapalooza and stuff like that. The band took a brief hiatus before starting their next album so that James could break his arm and let it heal in time. Um, and they called this album Load in 1996. I'm not going to talk about it. I also like don't really care for the cover art either, but it's this artist dude who uses bodily fluids to make his art ew all of them ew all of them and so i'm not a i'm not a big fan of that type of art scene personally nah not really my scene but if it's for you good for you good for you <laughs> it's the recurring theme of yeah. this metallica episode yeah um uh so that album comes out <laughs> and during this album because you know they went on hiatus and then they made an album and then they show up for a show and the long hair is gone on all of them and it freaked out a lot of fans to the point where vh1 had to talk about it oh my gosh <laughs> they were all just so mad i mean i would have the same reaction if the struts all cut their hair so yeah fair yeah and then um in 1997 they released a double album called reload 
And then they put out a compilation album called Garage Inc. in 1998. So as far as for Legacy, like I mentioned, I'm not going to have a ton of time to talk about the 2000s here. Only the notable highlights. Starting with probably the most notable of the 2000s, Metallica sued Napster when they leaked their song I Disappear. I forgot about Napster. And pretty much killed the software. And Josh and I were talking, like, it didn't age well because while I understand, it sees rich dudes suing just a tech company over music that, you know, they're probably going to make their money back anyway. So, yeah. But anyway, um, and then after a decade with the band, Jason Newstand left due to creative differences and they hire Robert Trujillo, I think is how it's pronounced. I apologize if I butchered that, who is still with the band. In 2009, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, they have received 23 Grammy nominations up to this point. So Damn. like I said, they're fine. They're also one of the most commercially successful bands of all time and have sold 125 million albums worldwide like that's just insane and that's pretty damn good for a band the radio would not play yeah but i want to spend this legacy section on the story arc i see for this band while i look at their 40 years of history which is disgusting that i have to say the 1980s was 40 years ago yeah i don't think i realized it was 40 years it's still like the 60s feel 40 years ago yes and it's just not right it's just not right but anyway one thing i'm happy to see in metallica is growth the band was smart over the years as they looked at other bands and saw what would not work for example what Axl Rose did by leaving the stage in Montreal mm. after having a temper tantrum. Never over, take life advice from Axl Rose. Yeah. James Hetfield said, like, I learned not how to act that day. And by them choosing a producer, Bob Rock, who they didn't like the bands he worked with, but they liked the sound. And even with that, learning a technique from a glam metal band that they do not like. And so while, yes... The band started out as, and there's just no way of saying this, but kind of children in the way they acted against other bands and just wanted to play thrash. The band adapted and grew to become the legacy artists they are today. This brings up something really important that happened. Very recently, as in this month, the band gave permission to um, an album to celebrate the 30 anniversary of the black album called the metallic the metallica blacklist and like i said that cover of miley is on there but it also features artists across music spectrums such as weezer rena sawayama ghost alicia cara Corey taylor the who chris stapleton and phoebe bridgers i am i just named artists from heavy metal rock pop and country and that's the point because some fans may look at this and be like this is a sellout move but the band is just merely showing the impact of metal or at least their music has had on so many artists in so many different genres it's an act of preserving metal making it something new for a generation that already pulls influences from everywhere and isn't that like fucking great like I will keep repeating till like the day I die and 
at least tell you motherfuckers until you listen to me. Like we need to get elitism out of rock. Like it is killing. That's our next shirt. It's true. We need to get it out. It's, it will ultimately lead to rock being outdated. Oh yeah. Keep this up. And if you want metal to be preserved, you got to let it go the directions that artists want to take it without the, well, actually, in a brutal voice. Like, it's not going to solve anything. And I think Metallica understands this. It took them a bit to get to this point, mind you, but we can look at their growth, the artists, and know it's possible to go from elitism to metal for everybody. Metal up the ass for everyone. Metal up the ass. We forgot to drink, too. Can I put in a beer plug that I forgot to put in? Yeah. I'm not drinking it right now, but there is a oh, lady. Yeah. I was supposed to do it in September and I forgot. Well, it is September. I was supposed to do it in August. There is a, a lady I met in Virginia Beach and I was in a wine store killing time, looking at bottles of wine. There were $500 just for fun. Why not? And she was there giving samples of her um, ginger beer and hard lemonade and she had a peach mimosa and her story is so much fun. Like, I love seeing people who are passionate about their craft, mm-hmm. what they do. And me and her were just having a conversation. And she was like, I told her, like, on Sundays during the summers, I like to make different cocktails with different f- fresh fruit and things like that. And she just started giving me all these recipes for different drinks she makes. And her family, like, owns a distillery or a brewery or something like that in the Turks and Caicos like her family was originally like the first brewers there and I think we're like one of the first brewers in America in general so it's called Harriet's Legacy because I promise I give her a shout out and it's well worth it her hard lemonade is very good because it's not super sweet and her ginger beer is super good and it's an original recipe from like the 1700s that's super cool yeah so anyway Harriet's Legacy go check them out Thanks for listening. You can leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts or Good Pods. Uh, Download the Good Pods app. You'll find lots of cool things over there. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website, shewaraki.com. There you'll find links to our social medias, all the show notes, ways to contact us, and a link to our merch store. And remember, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.